Good morning. Y'all are getting so much better at that. Good morning. My name is Allie Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here. And when I was in seminary, one of my professors got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at 35. And she took a leave of absence for treatment and went down to Atlanta and got in a clinical trial. And over the year, we followed her progress. And at the end of the year, she actually entered durable remission. Like she was not cured, as she said, there was no cure for her cancer, but she was in a state of in-between. And she wrote an article after she got out of the hospital in the New York Times, and it was a pretty well-circulated article, talking about what it feels like to be the angel of death at a party, and what to say when you run into someone who is in the midst of a diagnosis that's not curable, but they're also not dying actively. And she talks about how every time she would go into a party, she would sit there, and in her mind, she would categorize the people who would come up and talk to her. And eventually, she categorized them into three categories. She said, I have learned that there are three types of people to how they interact when they hear about my diagnosis. The first is you have those people who come up to you and just hear about your story and then say things like, well, at least it's not pancreatic cancer. I heard that's way worse. And you know these people because you've heard them in different versions, right? They give you a version of, well, at least it's not this. Or they tell you worse. They tell you their own story of affliction or their relative story of affliction about how something happened to them. And they try to minimize the death that's haunting in the room. She calls those the minimizers the people who just try to take the face of mortality and try to squeeze it into a little box and dismiss it by the phrase, well, at least. And then she said, there's another kind. Those are the solvers, and we know those people. The ones who, as soon as they hear your story, they say, hey, have you, you know, my cousin, she tried this drug that's only sold in Europe, but you can go over to Paris and you can get it there, and it worked miracles for her, so I know it'll work for you. They just want to offer something, some type of solution. They'll offer a vitamin supplement, they'll offer a drug, they'll offer a prayer, they'll offer a different type of spirituality, anything, just to solve the problem. And she called those the solvers. And then for the last category, she said, then you have the teachers. And she said that one day she was in her hospital room and a well-meaning guy who was a friend of hers, part of her church community, came in and told her, well, Kate, I hope you have a Job experience in this. And if you know the story of Job, you know, literally, he gets everything taken away from him, like his kids, his family, his wealth, everything, his, his health. And it gets restored eventually, but man, she thought, how in the world did he think that was an okay thing to say? But she understood she understood that what he was trying to say is, I hope this teaches you something. I hope this teaches you something because I really can't wrap my mind about why else God would be doing this to you unless it was to teach you something. So I'm just going to say that it's supposed to teach you something. And she wrote this article saying that, of course, all three of these things are not helpful responses. But what they do indicate is the general anxiety around death that we have as humans. It's not new, 
It's as ancient as time, as ancient as when humans first started to exist. This general fear, the pit in the stomach, when we talk about death, when we talk about mortality, there's something about the end of life that feels scary and awkward. It feels like when we die, we're, what next? Will we be forgotten? Will our life mean anything? What is there to this life if there's nothing after life? And we deal with that anxiety in lots of different ways. One theologian I read this week, Paul Tillich, says we deal with it in two ways. And the first way is what my professor was talking about. We avoid it. We just like make sure that there is no trace of death left in our life. And we can see this everywhere, not only in how we talk about death or how we interact with people who are terminally ill or have some type of chronic disease, but also just in the ways we manifest technology to make sure that there's no sign of death, there's no sign of aging. We have literal places called funeral homes that are separate from our homes so that we don't have to interact with death. In the modern world, it's actually pretty easy to move around the world and not interact with death. My guess is, for those of you who are lucky, it won't be until you're older than your 40s or 50s when you'll experience a death for the first time, if you're lucky. Death is not a thing that we interact with mostly. It's something that we've learned and created our worlds to avoid. But the second way, and the one that I want to talk about today, the second way that we avoid this anxiety is we obsess over the question, what happens to us when we die? What happens to us when we die? We've been thinking about this question. People have been talking and writing about this question for as long as humans have been around. There's these ancient burial sites, the earliest humans that we can identify, that are buried, but they're buried with like tools and things. Like, it looks like maybe they're prized possessions, in a way that indicates that even the most ancient of humans believed that there was probably something after death. There had to be. They wanted that hope to believe that there was something after death. And for thousands of years, humans have been trying to answer that question to help us live in this anxiety better. What happens to us when we die? And for most of us right now, in 2021, our answer to this question, whether we know it or not, whether it's totally conscious or not, is something that looks like a Looney Tune cartoon that I saw this morning. It's a Tom and Jerry cartoon from 1940s, but in this cartoon, Tom, he's the cat, right? Jerry's the mouse, yes. Tom the cat dies, I don't know how, but he dies, and he goes up to this escalator, it's literally a golden escalator, and it goes winding up to these clouds, and he's like on the escalator not knowing where he's going, and he gets up to the top, and then there's this place, and there's clouds for the floor and clouds for the wall, and then there's this gate that's golden, and there's this train station that says like Heavenly Express Station, and he walks up to this little, little train booth, and he asks for a ticket. And of course, the whole point is that he's denied the ticket. He actually has to go back and ask for Jerry's forgiveness in order to get on the train to heaven. But that, that vision, maybe it's not as cartoonish, but if you think about it, most of us have some notion that there is a place in the clouds 
something to do with gold, because most of us put gold there, and that if we're good, if we're good, then we get to go to that place. If we're not good, we get to go to the other place. But that's our version of what we think happens to us when we die. And there's something really comforting about that version. There's something really nice about that version. So over the last 500, 200 to 500 years, that version has become more and more robust with imagery. There's been movies and paintings and people have gone wild with their imagination about what that might look like. But the problem with that version is that there is no way that that image would have ever occurred to Jesus. Well, it would occur to him, he was God. But it's not what he thought would happen when we died. It's not what any ancient Israelite living in the first and second century of Israel would have thought happened when we died. So today, we're going to take a look at that question. We're going to look at scripture. We're going to try to reimagine what actually happens when we die. Because it's not that scripture doesn't say anything about that. But there is a twist to it. And, and you would assume that since this is the question that we spend most of our time thinking about in life, that surely the Bible has a lot to say about it. But I'm going to tell you now, I'm going to start off the sermon this way. The Bible actually does not have that much to say about what happens when we die. The Bible does not have that much to say, take a deep breath, about what happens when we die. And that, I know, is way different than some of you learned when you were growing up in church. But we're, I'm going to hold your hand. We're going to get through this. We'll get to the end of it, and you'll see why I think that's actually a better thing. I think that's actually a good thing. So we're going to try to answer what is the question that Scripture asks. Because in the last lines of the creed, what we're summing up today, there are two lines. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And normally, when we read that, we think it means I believe in Jesus' resurrection of the body and life everlasting has some connotation of heaven. It doesn't mean that. It means our resurrection of the body and life everlasting. It means what happens when we die. We believe in two things as Christians, universally, about what happens when we die. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to start with this concept of heaven. Because you're right, you're sitting here thinking, uh, I know the Bible talks about heaven. Like, I've actually read verses that talk about heaven. One of the most famous verses in Christianity, for God so loved his, the world that he sent his only son, that those who may believe in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Doesn't that talk about heaven? Doesn't that say something about life after death? I mean, the creed speaks to it too. Surely the Bible speaks about it. But before we get to that, we have to address this concept of what we consider heaven and what the Bible considers heaven, because they're different. So for us, for most of us, we consider heaven and earth separate. And that's right, mostly. So the Bible defines heaven as God's space. So I think of it like that. It's a realm where God exists. Not a place, but it's God's space. And in that space is pure goodness. It is God's dwelling place. It is where he belongs. It is the fullness of God manifested in that place. And then earth, is where humans are. 
And characteristically in the Bible, sometimes that place is called the world or the present age or the age of sin and death. It's this place where generically we describe it as like kind of sinful or with humans. That's not exactly what it means. It just means this world. But here's the catch. If you go back to the beginning of the story, the beginning of what God wanted for the world, he always, always wanted heaven on earth. They weren't supposed to be separate realms ever. Like that's the whole point of the beginning of the Bible. That's what Eden is. It is this perfect blend of the realm of God in the realm of human beings. God is partnering with humans for their flourishing and for the flourishing of everything in creation. Heaven came down to earth and they're perfectly unified. And then Adam and Eve make their decision and their choice and they decide, no, 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 we can do better. We want a separate realm. We want our own world. And they make their own world and those things are slightly separated. But here's the catch. They're slightly separated but God's whole point, and I would argue the whole point of the Bible, is that God is trying to tell us a story that he's trying to reunify heaven and earth. The unification of heaven and earth is the whole story of the Bible. The reunification of heaven and earth is the whole story of the Bible. And God from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, is trying to make this happen. He's trying to make it so that heaven and earth can be together. That's why you have those stories about the temple. Remember last week, if you weren't here, we talked about how the temple is essentially God's presence. Sometimes it's a tabernacle that's a tent. The other temple is the actual building that Solomon built. But ancient Israelites believed that in those places, God's actual presence dwelled. It was like a hot spot of God's energy. So you couldn't really go near it unless you too were part of heaven. In other words, unless you were purified or clean and then you could enter into that presence. But you had to resemble heaven to be in that place because it was heaven on earth. And the ancient Israelites would make sacrifices in order to cleanse their part of earth, to order to clean Israel. And that way Israel became heaven on earth. That was the whole point of the sacrifice system, that heaven could be on earth. And we all know the next part of the story is that it didn't quite work. <laughs> so, so God had to send his own form of a temple. And this is out of John. And it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling, it's actually the word tabernacle or temple. It's the word of temple, and he did that on purpose because what he's saying is, look, you don't need the temple anymore. Jesus is God's presence on earth. Jesus is heaven on earth. But God did a crazy thing with Jesus, is that Jesus didn't stay in heaven. He went out into the sinful parts of the world, and he made, by healing and forgiving of sins, he made little pockets of heaven all around earth. And then, of course, he died. But when he did, he did something incredible. He took earth 
And he started to atone for earth's sins. He started to recapture earth as part of heaven. Jesus, in other words, enacted this reunification of heaven and earth. Why do you think it is that Jesus talks so much about the kingdom of heaven being here? Why does he tell us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus was imagining that heaven, he was coming down to earth, and now that he had died and rose again, heaven could be on earth. It could live inside of us and and work in our hands that we could do the work of heaven, of God's presence, here on earth. That we could work for the reunification of heaven on earth. And Jesus' death and resurrection showed his followers something else. You see, most of the time they had this belief about the resurrection of the body, but his body showed them that, yes, this was a promise that one day heaven would be fully on earth. It's a pretty incredible story, but one that we don't think about as often because the New Testament uses words like this, kingdom of God, new creation, paradise, eternal life. They all mean heaven. They all are indicators of not a place, but a state of being, a time Most generically, we talk about it as the end of time, when heaven will come down on earth completely and we'll all will be reunified. Now, all this is said and good, and you're like, great, but what happens to us when we die? And that is a fair question because we have to answer that question, but I need you to understand what heaven is first because we're going to look at some passages in the Bible that talk about death, and let me tell you, there's not so many. But we're going to talk about a few of them to try to get to this understanding of, okay, what did Jesus believe about what happened when you died? And then we'll circle back around to this concept of heaven. So let's start in the Psalms. The Psalms are some of our earliest writings that we have of the Old Testament, not in how they're listed in the Old Testament, but just in terms of when they were penned. So they were penned the earliest. And in them, you really get this sense, and here's one. You'll get the sense, but God will redeem me, my life from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me. Now, what's interesting about this is there's really no indication that the ancient Israelites believed in life after death. Really not at all. They, it seems that they believed you died and then you died. And it was sad that you died because then you couldn't worship God anymore. But occasionally in the Psalms, we have these notions like this. Well, there's something else going on, like some belief that seems to be permeating through ancient Israel. And you'll see it grow and grow over the course of the writings of the Old Testament. There's this idea that if God loves us so much, if he is so committed to the idea of heaven on earth, then surely God the Almighty can be greater than death. Surely God the Almighty can be greater than death. And so you get notions like this where there's talking about God rescuing us from Sheol, which is a generic term, kind of like Hades. It's this idea of the grave. You're in the grave. You'll get rescued, and it says, this is the closest we get, he will surely take me. But I want you to notice, take me. That's it. That's all we get. Take me. No location, no timing, no definition of where it's going to be, what it looks like, no definition of if there's no concept of like a separate soul in ancient Israelites, so there's no idea of what that actually looks like. So we start off with this vision of maybe there is something life after death, but we're not exactly sure what it looks like. 
And then, about 200 and 300 years before Jesus, God gives two visions to two prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel. And Ezekiel and Daniel come forward and write these visions down. And when they do, these visions look like this. So Ezekiel 37, the Lord God proclaims, I'm opening your graves. I will raise you up from your graves, my people, and I will bring you to Israel's fertile land. And then Daniel follows, and Daniel says, many of those who sleep, i.e. who are dead, in the dusty land will wake up or rise again, some to eternal life and others to shame and eternal disgrace. So what you see is the shift in the Old Testament where suddenly there begins to be this revelation that maybe there is something after death. But it's not what we think about after death. There's this idea that God is forming a new Israel, a new people, and one day that Israel will be established from the bodies of those who are raised from ancient Israel. But the idea is that that won't happen until the end of time. So it kind of looks like this. Your body dies. They don't talk about where it goes, what happens in that intermediate stage. At the end of time, all the bodies of the Israelites will be resurrected. And they mean their bodies. Like, they mean their actual bodies. That is how they understood our soul and who we were. You could not be yourself without your body. There's some kind of judgment that happens at the end of time, and you either go to eternal life or eternal death. And you can see now how we got our concepts of heaven and hell. But that's not actually what the Bible says, heaven and hell. They say this. And this is really different. But from all we can understand, this is the concept that Jesus is preaching on whenever he mentions something about heaven or hell. And Jesus himself doesn't use that language. We've just translated it that way. But instead, Jesus is almost exclusively talking about this last part, that new creation of eternal life and eternal death. And it changes our understanding when we read passages like this, also from John, which says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will be in heaven. You can translate that eternal life, will be in heaven. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see, Jesus is talking very explicitly about that final piece of the puzzle, that new creation, that idea of the end of time and what will happen when heaven comes down to earth. That's what Jesus is talking about almost exclusively in the New Testament. And it's odd then that we don't focus on that that we tend to focus on, on this idea of what happens immediately after we die. We tend to focus on the question mark. We tend to put all of our stock there. We put our hope, and I've sat through enough funerals to understand, we put our hope in that question mark. We talk about it as if it's immediate, and I get it. It's comforting. It's, it's better. It makes us feel like, okay, I have some type of thing to hold on to in this sadness and this grief and this anxiety. But Jesus is pointing us to something else. And let me tell you why I think it's better. I think when we put our hope in that question mark, we're cheapening ourselves. We're giving our, ourselves this little tiny present instead of the present that Jesus has actually promised us. 
You see, we don't go to heaven, but heaven comes down to us. We don't go to heaven, but heaven will come down to us. You see, this last part, eternal life, heaven on earth, new creation, it is everything we have ever hoped for. It is the hope that we stand on as Christians. It does not mean that that question mark is nothing. Some people say it's blissful rest. Some people say that there is some version of heaven and hell in between, and then we get resurrected again. There's lots of faithful expressions for that question mark. And it's not that we shouldn't ask the question of what that question mark means. But I would rather our eyes turn to the thing that Jesus cared about, that he talked about, that he wanted to announce, the thing that he was enacting, the hope that he believed in, the hope that would sustain us, the hope that he talked about and knew would make our lives more full here, that we have a promise that when Jesus comes again at the end of the age, there is something better for us. And it is not a cloud kingdom in the sky. It's better than that. It's here it's here and living our lives in our bodies, enjoying the relationships that we have here, eating and drinking and understanding that here is where heaven is. Here is where heaven is to come. And so we can act like heaven is already here because there are parts of this life that mimic heaven. You know them. You've seen them. When you're kid is born for the first time, or when you get married, or when you see a sunset, or when you read something and feel joy and life, when you feel God, that Holy Spirit working in you is the sign of heaven here. It is the invitation that Jesus issued to you so that you would understand you don't need to put up all your anxiety in the question mark of what will happen when we die because he's given us a promise that is greater. And that promise isn't death. That promise is life, new life, better life, perfect life. My hope for us as we wind down this series is that these teachings started to ask and stir some questions in your heart. Because we believe firmly that those questions are God-given, that they are an invitation from the Holy Spirit to dive deeper into this thing we call faith. And yes, most of our faith is a mystery, but some of it we can stand on. And one of those things, two of those things, are we believe firmly in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Let us pray. Spirit, come. Your goodness permeates this place. Help us stand on something greater. Help us believe in a deeper promise. Give us faith and eyes to see Give us hearts to believe. Give us the minds to understand. 
and give us the words to teach. Lord, we hold something different than others around us. We hold a promise. Or better yet, we hold the knowledge of that promise. Help us to live into that promise here, to know that it is true in our bones and to have hope of where our real life lies. It is in your holy and everlasting name. Amen. The band is going to lead us in one last song, but before they do, we are going to say the Apostles' Creed together for the last time this summer. So will you stand up? And we're going to put the words on the screen. And as we do, uh, I want you to focus on those last two lines. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting as the final promise that we are given in Jesus' name. Let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. The band is going to lead us in a song that mimics the words of the Apostles' Creed. It'll be the last time that we sing it as well. And as you sing it, I hope you don't just see it as a statement of belief, but as something that you can stand on. Something that when the anxiety and the awkwardness and the hard and the suffering of this life comes at you, and it will, that you have the power to stand against. We'll invite the ushers forward to take up our offering, as this is also an invitation of holding things loosely in this temporal life in the hopes of a better future.